Hey listeners, welcome to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. This is your host, Preeti Padmanabhan, technology executive, investor and board member. Today, we will feature the book, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets by Al Ramadan, Dave Peterson, Christopher Lockhead and Kevin Maney. Our guest today is Marianne Morrow, Chairman and CEO and Founder of Ninth Gear Technologies. Welcome, Marianne, to 10X Growth Strategies podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Fantastic. We met at a party just end of last year. Mm-hmm. And I was so impressed with your background. So tell us about yourself, right? What are some key highlights and what got you to starting this company? Sure. So I'm a veteran of Wall Street. I studied engineering, finance, then law. Um, and then I use those skills for a great career on Wall Street where I've had a couple of successful exits. Uh, that was mostly on the East Coast. And then I moved to California in 2010 for a life without snow, closer to the grapes. I'm a big wine collector and my friends on the East Coast know that I do not visit during the the cold winter months. I've had enough snow in my lifetime. I spent some time working at the Wall Street Journal and then I left corporate America for more of a personal reason. And I wanted to get back into the game, but couldn't really get in at the right level. So I, we have such great resources here in Silicon Valley. We're really blessed. And I took a bunch of classes at Stanford, so my mind didn't turn into mush. And as I was looking at things, I started to really examine what was happening with startups and, and what they were doing. And I just had great interest as to what everybody was doing with creating companies here in the Valley. And people can create companies anywhere in the world now. It's, it's very easy to start a company. But there is this special secret sauce that we have in the Valley where so many people just help each other and want each other to succeed. It's very different than my years on Wall Street where it was a zero-sum game and there was a winner and a loser and you were just you know, fierce competitors. So I started to really look at some new technologies. And when I came across cryptographic methods, not cryptocurrencies, I want to be give my PSA right now, I really started to look at it in a different way. I had seen that technology back uh, in the Boston area when I was living back East, but somebody sat me down and explained it to me in a very different way. And as I started to evaluate it, the light bulb went off. And I said, if we can use this technology in a certain way in capital markets and, and institutional finance, we can eliminate breaks, reconciliation errors and corrections. I said, we need to we need to really work on modernizing the processes and make the, the whole entire transactions more efficient. So that's when I started to really study the technology. And then in 2018, I put a company together so that we can deploy liquidity before the transaction happens so that we can achieve near instant and simultaneous settlement. So that's what we do. Wow. 
I'm so impressed with that uh, and journey. And I completely agree with you uh, that uh, Silicon Valley is certainly that win-win mindset and a playground for startups. And I'm, I'm really interested in that cryptography you talked about. And uh, I think uh, that sounds like a very uh, important problem that you're solving. Uh, so thank you for sharing. And I'm looking forward to hear as you talk about through the podcast uh, some snippets from your sure. company. So, so one of the things that's really important here is that a lot of folks in the Valley take this Mark Zuckerberg approach about running fast and breaking things, right? Let's just get it done. That is all well and good. However, when it comes to moving money, it's not monopoly money. So we need to get it right the first time. So I firmly believe that the people that we have on our team understand the plumbing of capital markets. And that's what really gives us an edge. It's taking this culture, but then putting this overlay of all of our experience working on Wall Street to make it happen. Absolutely. And I think the running fast and breaking things didn't exactly work for the long run, uh, for sure. Uh, so that's good. Uh, uh, so tell me about the book you chose. You chose to read the book Play Bigger, and you said you've read it twice, which is great. Oh, way, way more than twice. I, I have it on Audible, so I listen to it on a regular basis. And anytime someone joins my company, they receive a welcome package from me with a t-shirt from Ninth Gear, as well as the Play Bigger book, because it's such a fundamental type of thinking. And it was recommended to me by one of my board members when one of our first meetings, he said, you're creating a platform, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And so he had the good fortune of working with Mark Benioff over at Salesforce. And the book played bigger was written by these authors who are surfer dudes. They're down the coast in Santa Cruz. I've never met them. I really need to go meet them one day. But they live down in Santa Cruz because they like to surf. But they helped Mark create this new area of, of um, some type of a database so that you could have all of your client relationships in one area. And I can remember years ago when I was working back East, somebody, one of my managers says, we're putting the Salesforce thing in. Is, is it okay to have all of our data stored on the cloud? And, and I think about data, you know, we kind of laugh about that now because data always is in the cloud, right? And there's a lot of cybersecurity methods to ensure that it's protected, but the Salesforce changed everything when they put together their company and they did it at a different level. So when I was asked about what we were doing, I said, yes, we're creating a new area. We're creating a new asset class, which is exciting and terrifying all at once, but we are creating a brand new category. And that's one of the things that the book talks about is how do you take this like old way of doing things and just reimagining everything so that you're creating a brand new something that just doesn't exist right now. So that's a fundamental thesis for Ninth Gear. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I run platform marketing and AI marketing for my company. Uh, and we compete with Salesforce to some extent. <laughs> 
And uh, so the CRM that you talked about really resonated with me, even when uh, the authors talked about it in the book. Mm -hmm. And tell us about your top takeaways from the book. Well, one, you have to be prepared because you're designing something. So it, you, know, you have to think about you know, where you're working in capital markets, at least for us, we're working in institutional finance. So where, where we're working and how do we just even design the category? And then how do we design the product? And then how do we, and how do we take the company and map that all together? In 2019, we sent out an RFP to a bunch of asset managers. We, we canvassed 70 very large companies and asked them if they wanted to be the, the uh, to look after our pooled investment vehicle. And we got some really strange responses back because people said, what you're doing doesn't exist. And I said, well, I know that, that asset class doesn't exist. I'm, I'm well aware of that. So it, not everybody was prepared to answer our questionnaire, even at the top of the industry. So it made people think and think differently about how to approach this asset class. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up a very good point on category design, even in the earlier question, right? A great category design, it solves a problem that people didn't know they have or a problem no one thought they can solve. And right. so tell us how you went about designing this category when you had this asset class that no one thought was existent and how did you end up creating it and how did it help you succeed? Yeah, so some of this that I'm gonna talk about is really fairly sophisticated information inside of capital markets. But I'm gonna talk about a telephone, right? So you probably have something that's sitting next to you that looks very much like my Apple iPhone. This is so powerful. And we could never have thought about this, you know, back when I went to college, right? The Apple computer where you put the little uh, CD in the front, um, those were just coming out. I learned how to code on, on hard cards way before you know, computers were in existence. And now I have something that I, I put in my pockets, never more than two feet from my body that I can't live without, right? So we've just seen this explosion of technology. But money does not flow as eloquently and, and elegantly as this type of device. If I'm going to Venmo you money, Probably your name is, is fairly unique. So I may be able to find you quickly using um, that, but I can Venmo you 20 bucks and you could have a glass of wine later tonight. And we'll all hear the ka-ching within 10 to 15 seconds. It's a very simple process. But behind the scenes, you could potentially take that money out right away if you pay some extra freight on that a VIG, as I like to call it in the betting world, you could pay a little extra and you could take that money out right away. But most people don't ever take their money out of Venmo. They just let it sit there and move on and you can buy and sell other things or buy you know, things with that money. In the world of finance, if I'm gonna move dollars to euros to yen, there's 180 currencies on the planet, there's $7.5 trillion per day that goes through a system that was created in 1973. 
1973 is 50 years ago. It breaks, it's kind of dodgy plumbing. And it takes 48 hours on a good day for dollars to move into yen, which means that today's Monday after the market closes. So we'd have to do something tomorrow, Tuesday. At the earliest, you'd be able to utilize that, that money on Thursday. That's a long time. We think about things at the speed of light because we expect everything to move fast, but it doesn't work that way inside of finance. And I just kept going after I started to think about this new types of technology and what we could do with it. I kept going back to days when I took over an operations group and I couldn't understand why they took information out of systems. They came in really early in the morning, six something in the morning, to get ahead of systems so they could take information out of the data, the mainframe databases, do translations in Excel, the magic you know, spreadsheet magician um, Excel, take it out, translate it, then put it back in. Like, why are we doing that? Every time someone touches something, someone's fingerprints is, are on that, you have mistakes because humans are not perfect. So every time someone touches something, things can break. And so after correction, after correction, I said, we have to change some of these systems. And when I learned about cryptographic methodology, I'm like, okay, we can all look at the same database. It's immutable. We can obfuscate parts of it. I, I'm not a big believer in DeFi. I, the world of finance that I'm working in, somebody is trading with another person and those transactions have to be private. So I think about safety and security is number one. Then I think about obfuscating trades. And then the third thing I think about is latency. So I'm like, if we can solve some of these problems and make things more efficient operationally, and then also reduce risk, that's a winner. So that's when I started to really get serious. Once I realized the technology existed to make that happen, I said, we can make this happen. And I started to think with a blank sheet of paper. Not everybody can work with a blank sheet of paper and create some things. Most of, of the world can edit something, but they can't always start with a blank sheet of paper. But I said, let's reimagine these processes, how they should work. Because if we can harmonize these processes, because there's dislocation between time zones, geographies, currency, and risk. If we can harmonize these processes, that can solve a lot of operational headache and it will reduce risk. And that's a winner. So that's what we started out doing is reimagining the processes and then taking the number of steps and, and taking them and, and compressing them together and accelerating those processes. Yeah, that's I can totally resonate with that. Right, like right now, if I had to buy a house or sell a house, like the money process with that is very ancient. Why can't yeah. we do it at the same speed as what we do for our PayPal's or Venmo's or Zelle's of the world? Gosh, uh, those the house buying process is really fractured. I remember when I bought a short sale um, back in twenty um, twelve. I did a short sale and I didn't close on that until 2013 because it was a short sale that went, went wrong. And I was in underwriting from June or, or July all the way through January. That's a long time. And every month 
I had to upload not just my new documents, but every one of my documents into the system, which was a colossal waste of time. But if we could just do it once or not have it come for me, but have it come, have the artifacts come from the company that was generating them, like my W-2 could come from my, my the company, that would just save so much time. And it would be more legitimate than me uploading all the documents. Yes, yes, absolutely. So it looks like your path now, you are on your way to become what the authors call a category king. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we do that, tell us, you know, a little bit more about creating a category, becoming a category king. And what are some key steps to becoming a category king? Well, the first off, first item is a lot of hard work. Things are never easy and it's never a straight line. The world of startups moves really quickly. The world of corporate America moves at a glacial pace. And there's a lot of inertia in the pathway. When people have been doing a process the same way for 50 years, and then somebody comes in and says, hey, there's a new way to do it. Not everybody is, is has their pom-poms out and are, are is cheering for you to succeed. A lot of people are saying, yeah, we don't need that. We we've got this figured out and, and there's no need to move it faster. But behind the scenes, there are regulators that have tried to condense markets for many years. A lot of it happened or was about to happen before the, the, the 2007, 2008 economic meltdown. And everything after that just kind of slowed down tremendously. There was another cycle that started to happen before the pandemic happened. And then again, everything started to slow down. There is a new uh, effort underway that is being sanctioned by SIFMA and the SEC, so regulatory bodies in the U.S., that are saying that the equities market needs to, need to move to T plus one, trade date plus another day. So instead of 48 hours, that would move down to 24 hours. When that happens, other markets like the foreign exchange market will need to follow suit. We're starting with foreign exchange because it's large and liquid, $7.5 trillion per day moves. It's such a large number that people don't ever think I'm serious. And when I start to talk about on a yearly basis and quadrillions, people think that I'm batshit crazy. So I it just it, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlement, does a triannual survey and, and talks about the, the, the size of the market. So we picked FX because it's large and liquid. And then also in the, in the spot market, which is money that needs to be moved immediately, immediately is 48 hours. There is no regulatory authority that governs that. The, the SEC, the Fed, the Treasury, and the CFTC do not govern it. There are best practices to follow, but there is no like official governing body. So that's why we decided to start with foreign exchange. But when the equities market shrink down to T plus one, there will be additional markets that need to follow suit. So we are we believe that in May of 2024, which is when this is mandated for the equities market, a lot of the other markets will start to uh, need to follow suit in May next year. Mm, that's interesting. And uh, in terms of like, you know, your business model, tell us a little bit, 
who are your end customers? Like if the audience was interested in your uh, technology or product, uh, how do they get a hold of it? Sure. So we are starting to work in uh, with some asset managers and some banks through a network. Um, and I, I, it's still confidential, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. We've tried to put this into market a couple of times with a, with a couple of banks, but um, because the banks were not counterparties of each other, they legally couldn't trade with each other. So that was not something that they were able to accomplish. Uh, we do have connectivity into some electronic communication networks. An ECN or an electronic communication network is kind of like a eBay that brings together buyers and sellers. These folks bring together price takers and, and market makers so that a transaction can go through with a request for quote and then the, the transaction will happen. Um, so we're, we are working with a handful of industry stalwarts to make it happen. Wonderful. Uh, well, we are, I mean, I think it will be a great uh, introduction to, uh, to the community uh, once you have that. Uh, so tell us anything else that you applied from the book, uh, you know, any other principles um, I, that you can think of that would be valuable for the listeners here? One of the things is not to be afraid. I'm just fearless and also um, unapologetically ambitious. So uh, that may not be or directly from the book, but just I have so much persistence in in making this happen because I can see this. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I can see that pathway so clearly, and maybe that is part of being a pirate in the in the story. If you've read the book, you'll 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 understand what I'm saying. But I can see that it's going to happen so clearly, and we need to modernize finance once and for all. It it seems. It seems intensely like strange and curious that for 50 years we have been allowing technology that can that could exist before now to, to happen. And we have just been waiting for someone to do it. When when everyone starts to use a device that is better we all will. And we'll start to wonder, how did we ever survive all the years with a rotary dial phone? The same thing's going to happen in capital markets. If somebody has an advantage, everybody's going to, to move towards it. And so we'll just be wondering, how did, we, how did they ever for years do that? And we'll be like, it's so hard. But once we have these elegant solutions that come through, we'll all be for the better and it'll be less risky. I believe that settlement risk is unnecessary and I'm on a mission to make that happen. Yeah, I can agree to that being fearless. And in fact, uh, Shelly R. Kimbo, who wrote the book, Unapologetically Ambitious, was on the podcast. Uh, she was episode number four. Uh, so we certainly- I have her t-shirt. I love it. It's bright red. I love that t-shirt. She's amazing. Absolutely. And you talked about foreign exchange being your first use case. And that's also pretty cool. Like I heard recently uh, from uh, one of the uh, companies that launched mobile phones, they first thought India was not going to be a big market, but then that was such a wrong call. So do we, having foreign exchange means you're opening it up 
for across the globe for different markets to get accustomed to it. So you never know where that growth would come, come from. It doesn't need to be the U.S. It can be any other country uh, around the well, world. Well, FX is just the start. We can do transactive energy, oil and gas. We can do derivatives, commodities, global bonds, repurchase agreements or repos. I mean, there's the list is... There are, there's a lot of dodgy plumbing in the world of finance. Uh, it, lifetimes of dodgy plumbing that, that can be fixed. So we've got a lot of work to do. Do you also see a role for AI in your journey? We have used AI in our tech stack um, and machine learning from the get-go. It's just, when you do, when you have repetitive transactions, there is a, something that is called fat fingering and it's not P. H-A-T. It's not a good thing. It's when you when you you're typing and you make a mistake. And sometimes you add an extra zero to something. So if you meant to do a million dollar trade, but you did a yard or you did a you know a you know a billion dollar trade because you put too many zeros in it, that could be a very costly mistake. And in worlds where you have a transaction that happens in less than a minute. You can't just call up your back office and say, oops, stop the transaction. I made a mistake. You have to call up your counterparty and said, I made a mistake. Please send that back. Most of the time in, in, the, in the world of finance, people are pretty good about doing this. Even if you're trading with competitors, they're pretty good about saying you made a mistake and, and sending it back. There was a situation um, several years ago where Citibank was held to a very large number because there were mistakes that just didn't get corrected and, and the courts adjudicated that where where it stood is where it was staying. Mm -hmm. But in this world, if you use AI and you have transactions that happen the majority of the days, you could have, we have a screen that comes up that says, okay, you know, this is very much outside your usual parameters. Are you sure? Just so that we know that there is some type of behind the scenes mechanisms that, that can catch it and, and be a little bit of a safety net. But these transactions are designed to go through in seconds, not days. So you need to make sure that you're, you're careful in what you're doing. Yes, yes, certainly. I'm glad to hear you embrace such new technologies so early on. Uh, that's pretty phenomenal. We talked about category design. Couple of other things I read in the book, which I would love to hear your perspective is product design and company design. Uh, I'm sure those are also top of mind for you. Tell us a few things on how you have gone about doing your product design and company design. So product design, we think that we know what we're doing at the start of it, and then we iterate until we have it right. So we try a lot of things. We don't spend a lot of time working on things that just don't seem to, to take off. So we try things. If they don't work, we move on and, and, and move into a different area. The, the biggest hurdle for us is entry into market. So we were named a concrete solution by the Bank for International Settlement when they did a a study on payments and, and infrastructures. And we, we were very happy and pleased that they named us a concrete solution. There are a variety of us that are pre-revenue that are hitting this. Uh, and we are the only female founder and female CEO that's in this, this group of 10 and, and companies. And we've also raised a lot less money just as a female. There's, we raised 
6%, the, the numbers are actually going down, not up. So 98.4% goes to men, not women, founded companies. So we um, have to do more with less. And so we our, our biggest thing with product design is designing how it's going into market. And we've had some brick walls pretty, pretty hard. And we've had to dust ourselves up off and, and just, you know, get back up and, and, and try it again. And we do that on a regular basis. So that's, I think, the biggest thing with regards to product design. Um, with regards to company design, startups are not for everybody. And I've been working with folks that say, oh, I want to join your team. I'm very apprehensive when someone's like, oh, I want to join because it's it's a lot of work. And it's, you know, at least in the initial years, it's not a lot of pay. Most of it's working for equity. So I can never predict who is going to do well and who's not going to do well when, as we designed our company. And I've brought on a lot of people and I've, you know, exited a lot of people. Sometimes when you start, you've got some generalists that are good initially, but then as you start to move into a different area, what, what got you here won't get you there. So we've, We've made, you know, knock on wood, we've, we've, we've had some you know, peaceful exits um, with some folks, but it's, it's all about a very lean team to get us to where we need to go. And there is no fluff in our organization. I think about every dollar that we spend just because females don't raise a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. In fact, um, I am part of the How Women Invest Fund uh, where we have focused solely on female founders and invest in them. Uh, it's a small fund, about a $20, 30000000 million fund. Um, wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. My friend, I always have this book next to me at all times. My friend Nisa wrote this book, and it's Women Tech Founders on the Rise. And um, it's really interesting to see some of the statistics. Women... Um, return 63% more ROI. So it's a really good economic sense to invest in women. And, and Lisa definitely wrote the book on it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's so true, right? And uh, and that's unfortunate that the uh, there's a lot of people who are not picking up on it and and we are working hard to break through that uh, <laughs> club. And we need to stop admiring the problem. The problem exists. We need to fix the problem and there are uh, women of color you know people of color have 10 times worse than i do and so we need to fund female founders not you know end of sentence it just needs to happen yes absolutely Wonderful. Um, Marianne, this was great. I'd love to hear any final thoughts and insights you have for the audience. Well, my first final thought is write some checks to women. That's always number one. Second is don't be afraid. Just go out and do it. And if you, if it doesn't work, brush yourself off and, and, and try something else and try it again, because we need to just solve some of these problems. Excellent. Audience, listeners, check out the book, Play Bigger. And thank you, Marianne, for joining us here today. It was a pleasure. So nice to speak with you.